Hello, and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. When Berlin's iconic Trezor Club was moving out of its original location in the middle of the last decade, debug journalists Felix Denk and Sven von Tulin came up with the idea of documenting it through an oral history. The story encompassed a wide range of characters from the Berlin scene, as well as the Detroit artists whose music was so critical to its development. The project soon outgrew its original remit. The eventual result was Der Klang der Familie, or The Sound of the Family, a document of Berlin techno from the mid-80s through the mid-90s. Across dozens of interviews, Dank and Von Tulen discovered they weren't just hearing about the beginnings of an iconic music scene, but the story of Berlin's reunification itself, told through an unprecedented youth culture. The book was published in German in 2012. To mark the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, De Klang de Familia will be published in English this November 9th. They'll also launch the translation at Berkheim that weekend, with a reading in the cantina, followed by an author-curated club night on the main floor. I sat down with Dank and Von Tulen recently to discuss what English speakers can expect from this new edition. at the beginning of the book uh, that sort of everything that is happening in the book, you weren't there for it. You guys are not necessarily from this generation that you're writing about. How did the whole process get started then? I mean, where did you begin? Um, well, the original idea kind of came up uh, in uh, 2005 when the original Trezor had to close. And um, I... Uh, before that, a couple of years before that, I had read uh, Please Kill Me and Verschwende Deine Jugend, both two books, also oral histories, on uh, first generation of punk in the US and then first generation of punk in Germany. And 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 I guess you all, you also wrote, uh, read them, right? So we were like fascinated by the format of oral histories, you know, how to tell a story while having all the different perspectives. And then Trezor had to close and um, one long afternoon at the debug office, <laughs> I was like, hmm, it closed and then what's going to happen then, you know, and it should, you know, somebody should tell the story of Trezor and wouldn't it be interesting to have that and then have it with like all the, you know, meeting of the guys from Detroit and coming to Berlin in the new unified city which was a diff completely different vibe than back in detroit blah 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 all that so i went to felix i told him about it he was like oh yeah let's do that and we kind of took it from there and it took us uh, six years <laughs> to kind of finally um get the 
contract with our publisher and then on you know on the way also the the idea kind of changed as well so we can made it bigger to, uh, as a oral history about the whole whole of berlin and not just uh, not just the trezor and was that just a matter of you began hearing stories about berlin that seemed to fit in with trezor but were maybe a little bit separate maybe things that you didn't know about originally Oh yeah, there were many things we didn't know originally. Actually, yeah. Yeah. No, we both came. You know, we were both born mid seventies. Both not born in Berlin, and when we came to Berlin, which was mid nineties, um, for us it was still totally exciting because it was so different than you know what our hometowns were like. You know, there were, there were parties in empty buildings. Everything seemed to be empty. Everything seemed to be possible in a certain way. And after a while, we realized that most people who have been longer in Berlin already said that this basically everything's over already, which we couldn't really um, believe. So, in a way these um, stories about the very early anarchic days where you just could go into buildings, build up a sound system and have a party. They were they were always part of kind of vivid in Berlin, but no one really um, wrote them down. So um, and since so many really different people came together, you know, it's it was, first of all, the kids from East Berlin and West Berlin, which is, you know, they totally they grew up in totally different circumstances. But then the guys from Detroit delivered the soundtrack, um, also totally different um, social scenario, US and um and especially Detroit, strange city, and um, so all these kind of different actors make a, a great. This is a great subject for an oral history, which um, is always exciting when there are many really different people coming together. It, it is interesting. I mean, I guess I came to Berlin probably 15 years after you guys got here. It's funny what you say. Uh, you know, it sounds like you got here more or less, and not to give away the ending, but sort of right when the book ends uh, is when is when you guys arrive, and it feels fresh to you. Uh, it feels new. It, it feels very exciting. Whereas in the book, it really does feel like the end of, of an era. I get here in like 2012 or something, and it still feels exactly the same. Um, I, I mean, was it was it surprising to you, like how far back things went? No, it wasn't surprising how far things went back because we, we kind of knew that before. But um, the just the extent of the anarchy... I wasn't fully aware of that, you know, and I was also wasn't, even though I kind of, you know, you, I wasn't fully aware of the implications of, of East and West. I mean, I knew, obviously, you know, as being from Germany, you know about, you know, you grew, you, we grew up with it, you know, I was, when the wall fell, I was 13, he was, he was 14, right? So, you know, you know, like different circumstances and, and all of that. And I lived in, when I moved to, uh, we both, when we moved to Berlin, we moved to the East, like everybody, I guess, mm. <laughs> in the mid nineties. So, um, but still like youth culture in the East, I wasn't aware of that at all, you know? For me, one of the biggest surprises was, um, and that was something we learned um, from from researching the book, from all the interviews with the guys, was um, uh, in a very fascinating way, Berlin was, even before the Berlin Wall fell, kind of... Um, a not so strongly divided city in subcultural terms. I mean, all the guys from East Germany, we asked, they were constantly hearing the West radio, say so they kind of knew everything about music. And since they didn't have so many channels, since they couldn't go to the parties um, that were constantly referred on in the radio, they had kind of a, um, it was kind of an, an imaginary flight to some some place they couldn't go. Uh, so I was kind of laden with a kind of a desire to to, to to go to these places. And they knew everything about music, about these this fresh 
slash new music and them. Uh, and this is funnily just uh, when the wall came down, it was, a, it was a Thursday. And so on Friday, the next day, they all went to that uh, Acid House Club in West Berlin. Yeah? And the guys in the Acid House Club were totally surprised. What are these guys from the East doing there? Where did they come from? Should we let them in? <laughs> all these questions all of a sudden arise. So, so that was kind of fascinating how, how, um, how a divided city in a way wasn't so divided. Um, yeah, the the radio, I mean, was was huge before this move. Before this music took kind of took off in in clubs, it was taking off on the radio, which was obviously something that you had access to whichever side of the wall you were on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was this one really. Um, there was one radio show by Monica Dietl, which everyone was listening to. She was playing the hottest records, and she also always said where the parties are. And sometimes she kind of um, made them up a little, like a little bit of a story, so you didn't really know where it was because some of the clubs were or the parties were illegal. So. Also, the kids in the East were kind of guessing, where could it be? Oh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the, finally, the first UFO was in Köpenicker Straße, which was kind of, you know, it was maybe 200 meters from, from, from Friedrichshain, from East Berlin. So it was so close. And one guy, Paul van Duke, for instance, he was always listening to uh, that radio show. And um, he was just living right across it. So he was, I mean, he could have walked if there wasn't a wall. Huh? I mean, radio was one thing. And w another thing that really I didn't know uh, at all, uh, which really surprised me was, that um, uh, that so there was this kid from from the east that kind of left East Berlin before the wall came down <clears throat> in like in the late eighties mid mid to late eighties and uh, who were also all like a lot of them were like break dancing you know in, the break dancing thing yeah. is, mm. is great I had I had no idea that break dancing took off and was in a way almost in like encouraged by by the East German officials or something mm. it was yes. like sticking it it was it was seen as an anti-imperialist mm. art form or something <laughs> yeah 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 so and some of them kind of left uh, left the GDR uh, like in 86 87 and and they obviously they stayed in contact as much as they could with their friends in in the east and and some of them kind of started to go to these like to the ufo for instance and also like got into the like very early berlin electronic music and and once the wall fell you know they reunited you know so you had you had like like right at the, like two days what felix just said you know just two days after the wall fell some kids from the east came and they weren't strangers because they didn't know anyone but they knew like two three people there they they hadn't seen for three four years and it was kind of uh, a real like they reunited on two levels you know on a personal level and and also like on a political level and that's i was kind of blown away by that you know i didn't i didn't know about that at all i something that surprised me was sort of um the ambivalence to some degree uh, on the part of people from the East about this whole thing. Uh, for, for one thing, it seemed like people were shocked at how bad conditions were in some parts of the West. Like they would go to Kreuzberg and, and just be, uh, th they would be like, there was one street lamp working on like the next four blocks. Like it was never that bad in the East. We kept hearing we were having it so badly off. But then also this this feeling that the, the few people who stuck it out in the East were somehow... Um, the, there was there was some tension when the wall comes down and suddenly all these people from the west are back. It's like, well, where have you been this whole time? 
Um, yeah, but um, I was. Uh, it's it's very it's very interesting. I I think it was very funny, but especially with the first impressions of the West by the kids from East Berlin. That's highly fascinating. I mean, what did they know about the West? They mainly had pictures of of the TV that they probably all were uh, watching, and then that probably what what they saw on TV didn't look like Berlin Kreuzberg these days. <laughs> it was kind of pretty much you know pretty run down and um, um, kind of a dark place and, and not that east berlin at that time wasn't much a happier place but but they uh yeah they were surprised that they thought it would be the golden west you know where everything is shining and and, and wonderful and people are rich and uh, and glamorous and what they discovered sometimes was that, okay okay they're weird people and the lights don't go it's um um it's very funny the one guy said that he was surprised that they were kind of they didn't seem to be rich when they got to a club they more looked like squatters or something you know and they weren't they weren't expecting that mm. that's quite funny but they also um they weren't ex uh, they weren't expecting to meet their old buddies uh, that uh, um, left gdr a bit earlier in the in the in these small tiny clubs <laughs> mm -hmm. well this this speaks to a to another thing that i was really struck by reading this book i mean if you've spent any time in Berlin nightlife, you know, even quite recently, you you kind of have a um, a sense of certain things that are, that are unique here, like the after party culture, um, the way the door works at at a club, um, the fact that these clubs aren't necessarily very fancy places. Um, they feel a bit run down, maybe in in some cases a lot like squats. I mean, you can see that the beginnings of this whole nightclub culture back then, you know, like at some point someone had to sort of start the first after hours club to, to kind of find these like kernels mm. of the beginning of this culture that that must have been exciting totally yeah yeah, yeah that was absolutely yeah i mean there, there are some eternal rules of nightlife nightlife apparently yeah which is like the great mystery of uh, of all the bouncers not to let you in for a certain while to let you wait i also was kind of excited by the very first west berlin club that has a, had a really a DJ culture, the Metropol was called. Um, also, West Bam was one of their early DJs there, and we had, they had kind of that, that I found highly fascinating. It's um, it basically it opened in the late 70s, was kind of a proper disco club, but had a late heyday during the high energy phase, kind of um, early to mid 80s. Um, that was when West Bam was playing there as well, and um, it was interestingly kind of. On the one hand, there was quite an explicit gay scene, but also kind of the strange new wave kids went there as well. So this this is kind of um, something that was always um, the best Berlin clubs and parties were always when kind of a, a gay crowd and a straight crowd could have partied on the on the same dance floor. This was what happened at the Metropole very first, I think, then um, or quite likely, <laughs> and then later on a bit at the UFO, but more strongly at the Planet, later at the E Work, then at the Oscar, and now obviously at the Berghain and about blank as well this is kind of this was one of the uh, eternal success formulas of berlin nightlife when that happens um the party's good mm -hmm. yeah it is it is true and that was that was another thing that i was really struck by is um you you don't really see in in berlin such a divide between the gay scene and the straight scene i mean they, they seem to be different camps within the same club right yeah interestingly and um it, it's cool for everyone apparently otherwise it wouldn't last for like 30 years now yeah <laughs> Um, another thing that I loved reading about in this book, that, that, that something else you kind of take for granted, maybe wouldn't necessarily think about, is, is hard wax. Mm. Um, you know, the, the beginnings of this shop, um, it's, it's a special shop. A lot of people like to go buy records there, but I think people don't completely understand um, what makes that shop special and how they 
were pulling off something that was sort of unthinkable at the time. Um, I mean, tell me a little bit about what you guys learned about that shop. Uh, one of the main things of this whole beginning of this culture is scarcity, you know, scarcity of information uh, about records, for instance. And and so Hot Wax, um, Mark Anestis being, uh, you know, music fanatic, um, he, you know, he decided to opened the store and he wasn't he was he just wasn't happy about the like the distribution channels that were at pl in place in, in Germany so um he did, and you know and there was like some of the you know early well mid 80s to late 80s um um like house and techno stuff from Chicago and Detroit and New York came to Berlin but always just you know one copy here one copy there and you know that and 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 he wasn't happy with this you know he he wanted and he loved the music so and he wanted to know where what's what's it like where's this music coming from you know um how how can i get more of it and and uh, for i think for him also it was kind of a He decided in late 1990, he decided to go to Detroit. And I think it was kind of also an educational trip, you know, business as well, but also kind of, you know, he wanted to know the people who actually do the music. He wanted to see the conditions under which they, the music was made and, and all of this. So he went to uh, first to New York, then to Chicago and then to Detroit and to meet people, to, you know, find records and 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 that's how it all kind of started um like those close dealings with like labels from detroit or chicago um which they weren't they were completely not used to that that someone from europe would come to their city um and uh you know try to you know buy all this like stock from them directly and kind of be really like happy to get all this like these hands on all these you know kind of sometimes even kind of forgotten records so um yeah that's uh i mean hardworks was really really influential in terms of you know kind of overcome the scarcity and also as a meeting point where people kind of i mean i think uh, mark anestos also says it in, says it in the book like everybody did know a little bit you know somebody knew this record somebody knew that record and you would meet at hardware or sometimes at parties i guess and you would sh share the knowledge you know oh, i heard about this today it's completely unthinkable that you, you know that you don't know everything or that you can just look Look it up in the internet, you know, oh, Discogs, blah, blah, blah. oh, yeah, there it is. So, and that's amazing. So, and one pivotal thing for, for, for the Berlin scene, I guess, is the return of Boris, mm. Berkheim resident Boris. <laughs> that's the return of Boris coming back from New York. I, the, the incredible, one incredible thing is it almost sounds in the, in the book like a lot of the original stock at Hardwax was just based on this record collection that Boris came back from, from the States with. Um, and also, um, so, so for one, he, he knew about all of this music from the States and it sounds like they were able to find, you know, some boxes of this in warehouses in the States that they were then able to get back over like backstock. But then also he spoke incredibly good English and was able to help forge these, these relationships <laughs> yeah. with the U S mm. distributors. Yeah, that's, that's, he came back and Mark and, and Boris, they kind of knew each other, mm -hmm. you know, um, And, um, and and so funny, you know, now he's he's a Berghain resident, you know, and back then he he wasn't, I mean, he was used to dancing in the Paradise Garage, 
you know, 2,000 people, like big. And then Berlin techno scene was tiny, like 100 people or something. And for him, it was like, what is this? You know, he, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't very excited about this whole thing. He didn't even like the music very much, actually. Yeah, he liked, he kind of, he, he came from disco, obviously, and he liked house, but he wasn't, you know, everything. Yeah, I mean, the, the early techno sound, which was very... Also, I mean, apart from some of the American stuff, it was very like Eurocentric, was mm. like really ravey, basically, you know. So for him, I, I guess that was a deal breaker. <laughs> well, he, he says in the book something along the lines of, you know, he saw the writing on the wall in New York that um, that uh, Giuliani was coming into power. Uh, the Paradise Garage was closing. Uh, the loft was leaving its original location, all of this. And the wall had just come down in Berlin like kind of seems like an opportunity or something yeah 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 i mean he kind of you know he thought okay the best the golden days of new york are over and and berlin something you know new starts something that he because he's you know he's from neukölln originally so he said for him it was unthinkable that berlin would ever be one city you know so i guess that was obviously a, a very good moment to to come back and see what what's it all about but i, I think he was kind of disappointed by the like the emergent house and techno scene um even though he was he might have been uh, disappointed he helped hardworks a lot with his knowledge and with his like english skills and and then he was the f you know he helped mark uh and the others like a lot to kind of yeah contact the american distributors and then yeah basically i think when um mark decided to go to detroit uh in late 90 before he went he and boris went to see derek may play at the ufo which was the first uh first time the debut of derek may in berlin and i think 25 people or yeah. something were there no one was there no <laughs> one was there and um so they went there and 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 uh kind of pulled them together kind of got all the courage and like went to, up to Derek and asked him and or told him like I want to come to Detroit and you know then they ch exchanged telephone numbers and kind of went on from there so Bo Boris was there for a very long time and was very 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 influential a lot of people don't really know that speaking about Detroit um in in the book I found that there was a certain nuance about that sort of Berlin Detroit connection that came out that I hadn't really read about before or hadn't really considered before um, it was so interesting how the, the two cities had a lot in common. I mean, their situations were the same in some ways and, and in other ways very different. Um, there's, you know, the story about Dimitri wanting to, uh, Dimitri Hegemon from Trezor wanting to go over there and start a club, uh, like the, the Detroit Trezor and, um, sort of the last straw for him was hearing gunshots on the street or something and realizing that it was just a completely different situation there. But there was also something that um, I think Mike Banks says in the book where um, he was talking about how um, with Underground Resistance and with Detroit Records in general, um, they were really trying to put all of these kind of forward-thinking, futuristic ideas into the minds of like inner-city kids in the United States, but their distributors were sending all of their records overseas mm. and where they were all being bought by sort of a middle-class white audience. And they were seeing a lot of money from this, but they were also like a little bit sad that their message was basically being 
diverted. The interesting thing is um, uh, it's kind of a symbiotic relationship in a way. You know, the, 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 uh, in Detroit, they had this strange, futuristic, super modern new dance sound, but they didn't really have a crowd that danced to it, which is completely strange, especially in dance music, because dance music normally um, evolves around clubs, you know, like in New York or Chicago. But it was quite different in um, Detroit. I mean, there were clubs, there were parties, but nothing nothing which lasted quite long. And they, um, especially the guys from Underground Resistance, didn't have a crowd. So most most guys, also the first generation in Detroit, were forced to go abroad to DJ to make money. And they went basically to, um, to England. Huh? The second generation, a bit different. They uh, went more to continental Europe and especially to Berlin. And um, yeah, well, I'll, we were in for one week in Detroit and we were speaking to people. Actually, we would have liked to speak to more of the guys, but it's hard to track them down sometimes. Um, and the fact that they didn't reach their own crowd is, is very traumatic for all of them. We had the impression. I mean, yes, it's great that they had an uh, that they um, could uh, that they kind of conquered the world with their sound, but not having an audience uh, that applauds you in your own city was was very difficult, especially for Mike Banks, who's um, who's not only thinking music terms but also in social terms and how to um, how to yeah push your community and um, uh, to to make things uh, work in front of his own door yeah well and, the, and their music which is which also has a, a very political element to it is is sort of going on to um soundtrack these you know very debauched kind of epic drug parties which was something that was not part of like the detroit scene either that was something i was struck by in the book too yeah. i mean Ber berlin is quite <laughs> mm -hmm. excessive now mm -hmm. in, in terms of what happens at clubs but i mean there's a lot of drugs in this book um did that do you do you feel like I don't know, did, did that sort of color some of the stories that you were hearing about? Uh, I mean, I don't even think that there are so many drugs in the book. Um, the, I, I think the reality was probably way more excessive, you know, like oh, that's oh, for sure. Huh? <laughs> way more excessive than uh, than, you know, you get a feeling in the book. But, you know, you kind of also have to, you know, just imagine uh, the, the role drugs had back then you know um it was completely different you know when like in you know bef like in the late 80s and you know in in dance i mean club culture was you know like on, only or mostly gay people had you know would do drugs well you know had co like contacts where they could get hold of drugs so when when this kind of when uh, like the straight the straight crowd and the the gay crowd kind of met and they kind of started to party together and this whole and and drugs were more readily available if, you know in some way or another i mean there are some funny stories about that in the book as well um that was kind of it was such a it was in a way such a turning point you know with because ecstasy was also kind of or mdma or whatever it was kind of a, a completely it was kind of a game changer you know and it and it fitted so perfectly with this new newfound freedom you know like the wall comes down you could explore the city there's no laws or you don't feel that there's any law you don't feel that you need to have any money you don't you could do it's like a playground basically and there's no one to say you cannot do this and you cannot do that and then there's this drug which kind of opens your heart and is very empathic and people kind of come together and there's this new this new music which speaks to you on a completely different level you know there's no there are no, well, not very much vocals, and 
no meaning you know and in, in a way and and you just dance you know it kind of you know explore and 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 reconnect to your body with it so i think drugs were a very big thing for a lot of people you know the experience the experience was very important you know? i think what's really funny is what um is when um um in in america back then um this is something where why especially underground resistance had a very strong anti-drugs um, policy is that they were you know they had a big crack problem in the 80s all that ergonomics so it was kind of but um in the early berlin rave scene guys like dj tani said that for instance they tried to convince the detroiters hey this is ecstasy this is something completely different this is really good and great and perfect so it's it's quite funny they um uh, the, the 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 detroiters they didn't they didn't probably know ecstasy not very much at least and um some probably found it a bit irritating <laughs> they probably found it quite irritating that the clubs were so gay as well um this was not also they what, what a lot of them said they were kind of polite um, when you touch these uh, subjects in the interview and um some also said that the, they were kind of they felt it strange how the germans danced they're kind of you know like mm -hmm. machine like <laughs> and um yeah especially like the burden brothers i said i think they said it once they were the first time on may day where there were like four thousand kids dancing and they heard their own tracks for the first time on such a big sound system there and seeing the kids on drugs they were really like whoa they couldn't imagine that this happens to their music they didn't have these pictures in mind when they produced it but it was quite fascinating to know all that huh? right because they were all producing things in in their bedrooms and basically yeah really totally, had yeah. no idea no, about it no. um although they had hits in england and all that mm -hmm. but they weren't in england yet so <laughs> also they didn't i mean for a very long time they didn't even know they that there was this one track on the second techno compilation um mm. which i believe huh b yeah mm. uh, uh, i believe uh, the techno compilation by neil rushton and, and derek may and apparently this track kind of blew up in 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 the U in uk but they didn't know about it because nobody told them you know and and then they found out through a guy who uh, who was working at kms because he came back from i don't know if he came back from the uk or maybe kevin saunders or someone came back and had a mix mag a copy of mix mag magazine and and they you know found a page with an ad like a full page ad and and it was i think della soul maxi priest and octave one on one page on the same ad and they were like what <laughs> we have to go to europe you know we have mm. to find out what's going on and and then and then they decided to not just go to london but also come to berlin and that's and then they went f mm. they came just in time for the first mayday that's something actually that also um huan atkins said which i found highly fascinating huan atkins obviously being part of the first Detroit generation, a guy who played in the in massive um, UK raves with 5,000 people, um, like in the late 80s, and he said like when he played at these, uh, we were wondering if it was different for for a guy like him to play in England or in Berlin, and he said um, um, interestingly, interestingly when he played in England there was when there were 5,000 people dancing there was probably the sound engineer and him the only black people, so in a way it was in Berlin whereas in Berlin it was like in, in basements and cellars and. Um, more underground he saw he didn't feel uh, didn't although he didn't speak the language and all, uh, all that it didn't feel to him more strange uh, in a way in a way it's there seemed to be even closer connected and yeah and, i remember i remember that point in the book yeah, he said that is, if, if everyone had been speaking english it would have just felt like detroit basically. yeah 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 and um also um um then i asked him i, I remember if, if trezor is the club where he has 
DJed or played the most often in his life? And he said, yes. I mean, that's also interesting. Um, and it, it seems that he didn't really consider it before, actually. I had the impression that he never asked himself which was the club where he played most. But but after all, this says, says a lot about how, how close the relationship in a way is. Yeah. yeah, going back to the, I guess, you know, the, the, the point about ecstasy and that bringing everybody together, um, it, it is really striking, like the sort of cast of characters that would be at, at any given one of these nights. Um, mm. I think it's a, the club, is it called uh, Volfish? Mm. Volfish, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, when, you, when you read about that place, you know, um, you would have these guys come in who were like soccer, you know, who were football hooligans, basically, mm. who, who would have, you know, I think they say in the book, um, I forget who says it, but something along the lines of like, these guys would have kicked our asses like every other day of the week, mm. but then they come in here and they're on 10 pills or something mm. and uh, they just want to go in the basement and cuddle and, and dance mm. and like do whatever. Um, you, you really do get a, get a sense that so many people were, were coming together during this time. I mean, you, yeah, definitely. You 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 had the same uh, kind of the same phenomenon in the UK. You know, when when the the, the summer of love in the UK, which was eighty uh, which eighty seven or eighty eight, I don't know. I 88, think eighty eight. I think. Yeah. So I mean, you you had a big. They had a big like hooligan problem in the, in the UK, and suddenly within like. Uh, a year or something th there was hardly any crime you know hardly any like hooligan hooligans roaming the street after after uh, after games and because you know a lot of them started to go out on raves you know and started to do ecstasy and kind of it's always i mean as, uh, as a, in the, the the chapter of valfish that you mentioned you know it's always a, a question of how long these effects last, you know. So for for a lot of those people who are usually more aggressive, you know, it lasted as, exactly as long as they kind of got back to alcohol and coke, and then you know everything kind of came tumbling down again, and they would start kick each other's ass again. So, but for you know, you have this moment, you know, this this opening suddenly, and I mean. Also, a lot of people were not on drugs. You, I mean, you, you always have to say that as well, because a lot of people were just really, you know, the music was so new and the, the circumstances, everything that was so new that a lot of people were also, you know, that was their high, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, you, especially in the beginning, because in the beginning, I mean, you had to have connections to get any drugs, you know, so... Um, I think that's also important to, to mention that it wasn't like just a, you know, some drug culture, you know, and without the drugs, it wouldn't have been as, you know, it, it was kind of both, you know? Yeah. There's a, there's a great quote in the book about, um, you know, a, a the, the party, a, a bad party is a bad party, whether you're on drugs or not. A good party is a great party when you're on drugs or something along those lines. Yeah. But I think it's, it's also not a small point, just kind of, to go back to the music and feeling high from the music. I mean, th this was a sound that had never really existed before being played in sorts of spaces that, that never existed before. Um, I mean, you mentioned this in the introduction, but like, that's no small thing. It, it really did sound like music from out of space. You would imagine. Mm. And yeah. totally, it was kind of a, it was for everyone and uh, kind of a flash of newness and nowness in a way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, so what most people said is that they, they had the the impression that the music is kind of gets reinvented every week. So next week you have a new sound. It was like every like a day was like a week, and a week was like a month, and everything felt so incredibly fast. Uh, um, 
And this is kind of where, where everything comes together, the musical development, but also kind of um, Berlin after the war when things were so unclear and unshaped. And when, when you were quick, you could really do exciting things, which is quite an exceptional situation, obviously. Yeah. Mm. One of my favorite quotes about music in, in the whole book, uh, and it comes, it's something that Mark Ernestus said, who sort of in my reading of the book is sort of like one of the real heroes of mm. the whole story. Um, but he said, um, uh, it was liberating to have music that leaves this cognitive level at the door, reducing itself completely to the rhythmic and emotional functionality and running free there. A great deal of power sprang from that. I mean, he's kind of saying that this music is not political, but somehow that's what makes it political i mean is that the sense you get yeah i mean that's kind of the you know that was kind of what a lot of people you know a lot of people thought especially people who were political in the 80s for instance you know and were kind of fed up with the 80s <laughs> and and maybe and coming from the, probably also coming from the 70s you know which were highly political in germany you know so and 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 also very violent you know um so uh, yeah i think for for it's it's the same thing with the love parade you know and and with techno as a whole you know that a lot of people said you know not having not having the message is kind of has been kind of the message it was kind of the uniting factor and also kind of you know that what was that's what it was all about you know to have the to take the freedom to say we don't want this and we don't need this you know we it's been all been said and done basically mm -hmm. you know so um i think yeah i mean you can always argue if this is really how it was i think they also do that in the book a little bit you know some people say yeah that that kind of philosophy kind of was came kind of came after it, you know, mm -hmm. because, you know, some people would just focus more on hedonism than anything else. And then later it was like, yeah, but that's, this is our political statement. So you can always argue about that if you want. Mm. But if you look at this, it's interesting. If you look at the, um, for example, Berlin pop culture of the eighties of bands, like the Einsturz and Neubauten, you know, it's very dark, very depressive, very heroin. Um, the whole pop culture was very cynical in a way. And um, it was very anti-emotional and everyone was um, wearing black and depressed. And then kind of uh, kind of techno was the complete cultural change in that all of a sudden things were colorful, everyone's hugging themselves, um, people were coming together. It was not the differences that were defining, but what you could share, you know. Yeah. This, I think, is also what uh, Mark Anessos says in a way, and which is reflected also in the music. Yeah? It's something that brings people together and not, um, uh, it's not about being cooler than you or something, um, all these dissolved in a way. And this is also the reason probably why so many very different people could come to these parties. Him, be it the uh, East Berlin um, football hooligan, the old breakdancers, or from the West, you know, the kind of um, um, uh, the, the squatters, the Schöneberg gay scene, um, you know, eternal students mm -hmm. <laughs> financed by their parents in West Germany, or those guys who wanted to escape from military service, all these people, completely different, but in a way, you know, with this new vibe, they, they could come together. And um, maybe also because you didn't have to speak, you know. <laughs> no, it's, um, you couldn't possibly argue about all the differences. It was too loud, too intense, you know. Well, yeah, it was, it was um, basically techno was just this space where sort of anything could happen. Um, I mean, two of the most powerful images in the book for me 
are both sort of happen to be holes in the ground. You, you have the like literally holes in the ground. You have the original UFO, mm-hmm. which is you climb down some mm. hole and, and you're in the basement of a building and it's mm. just a pit basically. Um, and then you have uh, the original Trezor, which is nearly the same thing, yeah. Yeah. descending <laughs> down into this this dark void, mm. and uh, the, the the music is sort of all that matters. There's mm. there's no um there, there's a p- pureness, you know, and and then like uh, it kind of t- takes takes you like I think Tillman Brems, one of the guys in the book, says like when when he when you went down to into the the original Trezor basement, you know, there was just strobe and just fog, and there was the music, and there was no way out. You know, you you, could, you had to you could, you could decide either you let go and you kind of have the experience and go with it, or you go home. Mm-hmm. There's no nothing else to do, and most people chose to experience it and mm-hmm. go go you know <laughs> go with it. Even the original Love Parade mm-hmm. um, is in a way. I mean, it's taking place outside, but it's sort of a similar thing. I mean, you just have these very makeshift floats. Uh, mm. sort of a minimum of organization and there's absolutely no real message associated mm. with it other other than the music itself yeah, yeah. That, that is kind of a hole in the system so mm. yeah <laughs> it's also a hole because it was a, um, as a demonstration kind of it was kind of legal but in a way it was also inspired by illegal parties which is kind of a, a funny a, a funny thing kind of a prank yeah mm. And yeah, I mean, um, uh, what made it so important was probably the fact that it wasn't in, in, in some um, in some dingy hole, some stinking hole somewhere, but it, everyone could see each other. So the scene got a sense of, hey, we, we are many, actually. So that was especially in 1991 when it grew bigger and people from other cities came. The, um, the whole, this tiny scene became an awareness of that it's growing and that it's there and that things are happening going forward that was probably the important bit of the early love parades sort of the the thesis of the book mm. if if there if, you know if there sort of is one what what you guys lay out in the introduction mm. is that that you guys sort of see techno as uh, something that people from the east and people from the west could could rally around it was mm. a culture that um, had something for people who had been quite quite divided mm. and it really sort of acted as this this glue mm-hmm. to kind of help reform um, the the family the, the the society I mean that thesis was that something that you kind of had a had an inkling that that would be the case or was that something that came out of the the interview process oh that came yeah. out definitely yeah. yeah we didn't know so much about it actually when we started and we wouldn't um you know as Sven said earlier I mean our first um, impression was um hey the trezor would be a great narrative you know to speak back then I, I wasn't even aware actually that it was Johnny Stiel a guy from the east who was one of the co-founders actually I wasn't aware of the German German aspect of the trezor back then so it was kind of something that we learned during research and um um the interesting thing is that um if you look at reunification you know it's um for um um um, it's, it was not an easy process for so many people. It was complicated. And also the, when, when the war came down, you know, there was a lot of, everyone was happy, but very soon lots of um, bad feelings came from both sides, you know. And in an, in an interesting way, in this tiny little um, scene of, uh, of fans of electronic music, that rave scene that emerged, this seemed to be a, a, a place where the reunification way worked much better than elsewhere, you know. And the elsewhere, the story was basically the West buys the East, you know. And the guys from the East, they, 
they felt oh, okay we, we are losing everything yeah um so uh, um there things seem to work different i mean it's obviously a difference when you're 18 or 19 or 21 when the wall falls um and when you're like 41 or something it's easier to adapt to new circumstances but we had the impression in a way that this is totally interesting um techno and all that gave an uh, an opportunity for these kids you know to do something um to do something on their own not being um kind of um you know manipulated by the state and um all that so it was kind of a new um space they could maneuver and freedom and they could find you know it is also interesting if you look at other parts of east germany former east germany um uh, things in leipzig in dresden in jena big cities started um to um, made their clubs, their parties, which are kind of a little, little, little bit similar to Berlin. And they were all kind of inspired by Berlin as well. So um, it was a strong, maybe they, they, many of them were kind of used to be breakdancers or maybe they had an ear for the electronic sounds. And um, then this new music came, which was kind of in a way similar. And then they could do it themselves. You didn't, there was, you didn't need so much, you know, you did a seller, a sound system and somebody who has a couple of records. So that was easy to organize back then, um, which is different to most pop culture in a way, which was kind of, you know, you need a band, then well, you need somebody who produces your record, it's just expensive, you probably never get there, many gatekeepers. So Rave was quite easily accessible for all the kids. And this is probably why it had such an impact, especially in the, um, in the, in the East German, yeah, in East Germany. Yeah. Mm. Uh I mean, despite the fact that this was a sound and a, and a scene that was bringing a lot of people together, um, in the sort of um, minutia of the way the scene operated, there, there was a, a fair amount of infighting mm -hmm. and a fair amount of sort of differences of opinion, both mm -hmm. about what the music should sound like, mm -hmm. how the mu music should be presented. Um, you know, you sort of had on the one hand this Trezor model, which is mm. purely the music. Mm -hmm. You know, people would think it was would talk about it as being very, very, very serious. Mm. Then you would have clubs like, um, you know, Planet or Valfish, which were sort of all over the place in mm. terms of what they were offering. I don't know. Maybe for, for me, the, the Trezor model was always what I thought of. I, I, I didn't know about this other stuff so much. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Trezor model or the Trezor itself is kind of the, the obviously the longest running club i'm even though in move now um and it, it, the most well known internationally also because of the, the the label and everything so a lot of people were not from berlin or you know they don't don't really know about everything else that kind of went on and also Everg, which was kind of back then when it was open which was just four years you know back then clubs didn't last very long usually <laughs> um ework was kind of you know if you kind of compare you know the mid 90s to now and you would have ework the kind of the club now you could kind of compare it to today is, is berkheim and it has that kind of uh, reputation it was that important mm. but since it was only around for four years they didn't have a label they didn't have all yeah. those things mm. nobody knows if you're not from berlin or maybe from Germany and were part of the scene, you don't really know about that. But um, so there was obviously always different, different models and different. And and in the beginning, everything that's the thing. You know, in the beginning, everything was together. You have to imagine that everything was together. It was you know, it, like Westman says, uh, I think in the in the Planet chapter, you would have like some you would have break beats, and then you would have some like Acid House from Chicago, and then you would have like some hard techno. And then you would have a record by Marusha or whatever. And everything in one set, everything together, all these different, at some point, different galaxies were all together back then, you know. And um, 
And just while this whole subculture kind of got bigger and bigger, people obviously, you know, people start to kind of, yeah, as you said, there, there were definitely some infights about direction, where to go, how much, how commercial can we be, or how much commer how commercial do we want it to be, you know? And everybody has this, like a lot of people had like different agendas about how to run things and 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 like obviously in, in the moment money is you know the money starts to get an issue you know things kind of also go might go crazy and also you had which is very interesting you had the kids from the east who had a completely different upbringing they don't they had a completely different idea about culture and 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 you know doing like big parties and stuff and and money basically and then you had the some people from you know like the kids from the west and some people from the west were you know for instance a low spirit uh, label f f uh, from uh, west bam and william Rutger, who were kind of had a completely different idea they started they were already there in the mid 80s and and when like techno started to get bigger and they realized oh yeah that's that's the thing you know we have to we have to kind of get into that you know they came into it with a completely different idea for them it was like oh this is a new pop mm -hmm. You know, we want this to be the new pop music, which was is a complete opposite to the Trezor model, basically. <laughs> so, and still everybody was at the beginning, you know, at the Big Bang, they were all together. Mm. And then they kind of, you know, uh, you know, had all these fights and all, all, all of this and kind of it all separated in all these different fractions and models and ideas. That is a really interesting point about... Um you know, some people seeing this as the new pop music and some people seeing it as mm. very separate from that. Um, you, I got the sense from reading the book, it seemed like the two kind of whipping boys of the, of the scene were, were West Bam, who some people just absolutely couldn't stand mm. because of his pop tendencies. And then Paul Van Dyke for mm. the same reason, who is someone who's sort of so poppy at this point, it's hard to even remember that he was connected with this original Berlin techno thing. Westbam was an especially interesting person. It it was hard to uh, imagine that he had the sort of longevity in the scene that he did because mm. it seemed like he rubbed so many people the wrong way. Yeah, he, he he probably had, but I mean, he was always successful. That's the thing, you know. He was he he was always successful, and he was. I think he was never. Uh, I mean, it's kind of crazy to say that maybe but i think he was never that successful in the scene you know but he he very because in the beginning when they you know they rented the ufo to do parties or they rented the um, um, um the quartier latin and it didn't really work you know and so they kind of and then eventually what made it was like the big thing you know that that was a big coup and 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 he was already a star. That's another thing, you know. He was kind of already a star when this whole st thing started. So he he already had that success and that kind of when he really got heavily into techno, that propelled him even further because he already had all this fan base, all these people who loved him for like "Monkey Say, Monkey Do," which was kind of sample house, mm -hmm. basically, you know. And so, um, you know, I mean, it's also interesting that he up till like i don't know 94 95 he didn't have a residence res like real residency mm. in berlin that and then then he got asked by uh, hille from eberg if he wanted to be a resident at eberg and that was kind of uh, you know 
I mean, in 95, you know, <laughs> so he like, like Paul van Dyke as well. I mean, he had a residency also at the, at the dub mission parties earlier than West Bam basically. But, you know, it's so interesting to see that, that West Bam was kind of, he was always there. He was always successful. He was never fully ac accepted by everyone you know so in berlin yeah. in berlin yeah, yeah and just mm. in berlin and the same with with uh, pvd you know mm. he was there from like really early on mm. and and uh very and also from very early on a lot of people didn't like his approach <laughs> mm. and but he was successful also from like mm. a year into djing oh You know, I'm going to New York, <laughs> play Limelight. It's interesting. Um, the sense that you get from reading this book is um, that commercial, uh, sort of commercialism or the commercialization of the scene was in some ways its undoing. You know, with, with Everk, you got the sense that the club got, got very, very big. Mm. The, the M, they, they say something like the MT, MTV had an awards ceremony mm. there. Um, the club made it to the front page of the New York Times. You also have uh, the story of Front Page, the, mm. the magazine, mm. um, which seemed to be very motivated by finding advertisers and its sort of connections with various record labels mm. and, and with Love Parade and um, securing exactly the right sponsorship deal yeah. to keep their magazine yeah. going and stuff. But somebody also says somewhere in the book, it's mentioned a number of times that this is kind of a Berlin mentality that like something gets too big, too successful, it's bad. So I wonder how you guys, you know, really feel about mm. this. You, you present the, the whole book as a series of interviews, but as, as editors and, you know, mm. maybe as journalists, I mean, <laughs> do you think that commercialization sort of had that, that, that real effect on the scene? I mean, well, if you look look at it from uh, look at how we are now with the scene and everything you know i mean now the commercialization is so much worse than it was even at the peak in the 90s you know so um it had a big effect on the origin like on from on the first generation or like the first and second generation of berlin because it went from being a completely new anarchic Uh, thing like really idealistic thing for a lot of people it, it and a subculture basically from really tiny it, it turned into a culture and it turned into something in a mainstream culture basically and the common commercialization was you know was part of this development basically um overall it didn't hurt the scene that i mean you know it just the, the interesting thing is when we s closed the book in which is basically in 97 when front page is uh, bankrupt era closes um so th that was kind of such a it was such a break you know a lot of a lot of people who we interviewed for the book in like in 97 they either started to okay i have to study now i have to study again the, like the the crazy years are over we have to i have to grow up now or something some people i mean a lot of people kind of started to kind of for the first time after all those years of craziness was like, okay, what am I going to do with my life? Like, you know, what, what am I going to do? So that for us, that was kind of the natural point to, to stop. And from then something new, you know, from there something new started, you know. If you look at Berlin after 90, 
97, you would see that suddenly, which was a big club after 97, that was one of the biggest was VMF, you know, and like, how did people look there, look like there? Mm. Suddenly they weren't dressed like ravers, but they, you know, what wear like, like really like minimal black, Helmut Lang, whatever, couture, couture, you know, stuff like that. And how did the music sound suddenly? Oh yeah, it was more underground again it was also more minimal it had a little you know suddenly you had much like smarter smarter right? slicker mm -hmm. you had compact you had playhouse all of this um you know all of those like german minimal house tech house whatever you want to call it labels they all started then you know in like 97 some 98 you know clung a little bit earlier than that so it, there was an end to an era that's you know that's all it was just an end to an era and 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 from there, it kind of went into another cycle. And now, I think over the last 10 years, we haven't see, have seen was like social media was like cheap flights and everything. We've seen another like really crazy cycle of change and of commercialization because it got so global, something mm. completely un you know unheard of or unthinkable back then even in in 95 96 i mean they you know they were fighting and kind of bitch fighting about i already played in new york oh yeah and i played in you know oh no uh, i think rock said like oh yeah i play in london and paul van dyke was like oh really london Pff, i'm gonna go to new york you know and that's like wow and today it's you know it's it's not it's really not a big thing anymore at all you know so um Yeah, I, I don't think it hurt the scene as a whole because we still have it. I'm, it's still there, but it, you know, it kind of was part of this development from an archaic subculture going into like a, a more or less mainstream mm. culture, basically. Apparently, Berlin seems to be a city that doesn't like stars, you know, <laughs> and doesn't like people to, um, you know, to grow in a certain way i think um, other cities take new york or london would be completely different in that respect and um uh, in our book there are a couple of examples of people who are kind of you know on, on just on the step of really breaking it yeah but then they don't do it and um we're wondering is, is this something that is kind of um, part of the dna of berlin you know is this maybe in other cultural or even economical fields the same in a way it seems so yeah it's, it's um People like Dr. Motte, for instance, he would have, or Tani, they would have been, they would have been um, the right people for you know, really a star that really breaks it. But in a way, they didn't. I mean, on the other hand, maybe they, they were kind of, you know, they were kind of punks. They probably, it's um, as if it was some some sort of built-in break that <laughs> says, okay, mm, this is too far. Huh? It, it is interesting mm. that um, you know, so many of the the people who are in the book are just people like you've never heard of mm. you know i mean you've you've heard of uh, dimitri hegemon i mean yeah. he's not a dj mm. or something mm. you've heard of mark ernestus he's mm -hmm. kind of a dj producer like quite famous and you've heard of the detroit guys but all of the berlin djs they're, they're mm. nobodies yeah. outside of the context of this yeah. very important history and, mm. and of this book funny isn't it i mean yeah. for me for me these all of these djs have, have a, um they were stars for me you know in a, in a way you know but I, i can a guy like rock a very charismatic guy he was he was working at hardwax and you know going there and buying records there was something you had to have a bit of courage and also um a guy like johnson for instance he, he's, he's such a such a smart guy you know seeing him dj back then I mean, he, obviously they were not not in the light there was some somehow hidden in the dark but but they were like uh, the grand seigneur of, of, of that music in, in a way and they were that 
of a very different charisma than pop stars have, but they have a charisma, obviously. And um, you know, they were very important figures for that scene at that time. Um, yeah, but kind of now they're forgotten, which is incredibly sad in a way. Huh? I mean, they, the thing is that they never... Uh, you know, they never set out to do it for as a career, you know, and they never thought of it as a career, which is, I think, you know, that which sets them apart from Paul van Dijk and West Bend, yeah, for instance, they, totally. because they They're always, professionals, they, yeah. Oh, yeah, they were always professional. They already realized this is a career. This is something you build on. This is something you have to work in a certain way, you know, and, and, and uh, a lot of, you know, those you know, like Rock Johnson, Tarnit, all of them, they, they, you know, or Dr. Motta, they didn't really, I, I don't know at what point they realized, okay, this is my path, you know, this is my, you know, this is what I'm going to do uh, for, for a very long time or something. But I think in the in the beginning, a lot of people didn't think of it that way. I remember uh, an early uh, interview with Tobias Thomas and Michael Meyer for Debug Magazine probably in 97 98 or something when they did forever sweet yeah. and 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 they were saying i can't imagine to do this in 10 years mm. even then you know a lot of people they it was not you know it wasn't it wasn't like today you know where everything's there you know you can you can plan your career just like that you know you can oh i love music or oh, what do i do i, I want to become a dj you know what i have to do i have to do this blah 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 and you go through the motion and then you know you either you know make it or not you know but back then for a lot of people it wasn't it was it was just there like pleasure and you or you you loved what you you know you just did what you do what you you know but but not necessarily thinking of like doing it in 20 years or 10 years or whatever or like having like a real career out of it which is really romantic in a way i like that as yeah. well i mean you know they were kind of kind of they lost themselves somehow in the moment and then afterwards said, okay let's do something else <laughs> yeah and um i like what rock said he says at very uh, at the very end he says he's happy that he's not djing anymore because what would happen if he did i mean he had these fantastic parties in 1991 the trezor what he what for him were among the most intense parties and um you know like now touring through um you know some kind of mid-sized german towns and clubs to kind of um that still book you i mean wouldn't it be sad in a way and i think that was kind of a proud statement and i like that a lot so um yeah. well maybe it's good when something ends in a way yeah <laughs> i would also argue that today like the mentality what felix said about berlin doesn't really like people really kind of be stars or something i think the mentality kind of changed in berlin i mean you still it's it's still not about maybe not about like glamour and all, all of you know all of this i mean it's still kind of within certain uh aspects of the that you know early uh ideas about like techno and but but you know but you if you look at you know, I mean, if you look at Berkheim, how big Berkheim got, you know, you know, you were mentioning before MTV did their after like their uh, video awards after party at Ewerk and all that stuff. I mean, that wouldn't happen at, at Berkheim. Um, but, you know, Berkheim has so much more exposure than uh, obviously than Ewerk back then, you know. You know, like being on the front cover, front page of New York Times was like, wow, amazing. And how how often was Berkheim on the front page of 
like highly regarded international newspapers i don't know i can't even count that anymore yeah yeah i mean it has gotten to the point where when i phoned my mom back in the states you know she's like have you been to that club recently i, I saw it in people magazine you know one of the big tabloid magazines in the states like three times yeah you know? so so it, it it kind of i mean the interest in berlin and all those clubs and especially like a big club like Berkheim, i mean it, it, it changed and the interesting thing is that um Uh, and it's okay, you know, like Marcel or Ben, they all, I would call them stars, basically, techno stars, global techno stars, you know, but, you know, they still, like, they, they still retain something of that, uh, the way they do it in a way, or the mm. way, also the way Berghain does things, and other Berlin, you know, Berlin clubs, they, the way they do things is, I mean, still that and that was still grounded in the beginnings, you know, and that's that what that I think that's what uh, sets Berlin, Berlin's club culture apart a little bit from other cities, you know, because if you look at About Blank or if you look at Renato or Bar 25 when they were still open, all that. You know, they're all they all did their own thing. And it, it's and you can see you can see the lines from like 1991 or whatever to mm. now. You know, there's there's this uh, those roots basically. It's it's a very tempting question to to sort of ask. You know, how does this book, uh, which ends in about 1997, sort of contextualize the era in Berlin nightlife that that we're in now? Um, I mean, what is that shadow that this era has cast over over what's happening right now? Oh, I think it's a very, very long shadow. I mean, yeah. um, uh, this is um, just um, yeah. Speaking of uh, Berghain, the, the the guys who do it, I mean, they met um, they met in Ewerk, I think, and yeah. um, they did parties at the Bunker, mm -hmm. in famous uh, Bunker, and um, so um, and, and, and Tresor is still running. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's um, so, speaking specifically about Berghain. Mm. It, it was hard reading about Ewerk, which mm. obviously I was never mm. able to go to, and and not thinking about. The way Berkheim does mm. certain things in, in Everk, they describe this sort of varying tiers of like VIP access yeah. that you would get in the club and mm. doing things like having, you know, allowing, giving MTV access to mm. it and um, sort of flaunting the fact that they're the biggest club, the best club in the city. Mm. Um, I mean, Berkheim is flaunted as the biggest and mm. best club in the city, but they, you know, distinctly do not operate exactly that yeah way. yeah as if they learn from the mistakes yeah yeah mm. yeah i think that yeah that's one of the main things they really learned from what could go wrong you know <laughs> anyway speaking speaking of stars in the way that the quintessential Berghain star is let in the end uh sven marquardt their doorman which is like the most famous face isn't it funny you know yeah. it's not not the people who run the music or the guys who run the club but the guy who uh, kind of protects the door from the wrong person uh, from the wrong people to get in i mean this yeah, they, is so, they've made him yeah. the star of the club isn't, isn't it fantastic huh? to have him as a star it's great huh? mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, given all of this um sort of this learning from mistakes i mean the way that the berlin scene is operating right now do, do you sense that it will be able to continue operating this way i mean is there any way to learn from the mistakes enough to create something that's truly lasting in in a, in a club scene i i think we're in a Even though the shadow from back then is very long, you know, and sets it's a foundation, still a foundation for a lot of things that that are going on here. I mean, I think we're we're in a completely wrong, uh, different uh, uh, cycle right now. Then you you can't really, you know, uh, you can't really compare that. I mean, there's also new ground to break, basically, with like social media, all that stuff that's completely new. So there were no mistakes made before. 
So mm. I'm basically the formula of having a good sound system, uh, uh, a room that is for whatever reason inviting in some way or another and people who love music and just and f just focus on music i think that will always work you know as a as a formula so um yeah we'll see where this is going you know where and another thing is which is always been very very important for obviously for berlin's club culture was the availability of spaces mm, totally places yeah. where you could do something places where you could places uh, you know um where you could just you know just do whatever you wanted you know and or places where you could turn into something new you know and the more difficult this is gonna get you know the more problems the whole scene might you know become at some point i mean to this to this day you know you there's always someone who finds something where like wow this was empty you know or you know there's always it still kind of works you know even though um it definitely changed a lot so we'll see how, how this is going to continue and also at some point people are probably bored of the berlin hype mm -hmm. and i mean it, it already started you know and then maybe in two three four five years only half of the people who come to berlin right now will come to berlin who knows you know and then maybe you never know what what will happen then or just imagine berkheim decides to close you know who knows how long they want to do that you know you, you, maybe they decide in a couple of years like mm. or whatever you know we we've done it all you know let's just close it and then boom you know the, everything suddenly it's like like the city gets to start fresh i mean it's <laughs> not that berkheim is berlin techno but for a lot of like in, just from the fi it's a fixture you know mm -hmm. the fixture would be gone there is this interesting i think in summer 97 Mm -hmm. Ever closed, like Suicide Club closed. Yeah. Every like there was no techno club. There was in summer 1997. There was only one techno club. Oh, yeah, there was there yeah. was Tresor. Yeah, only one. Just imagine. I mean, um, because everything everything nothing else could closed. Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> Can't imagine that now. Huh? No, <laughs> no, not at all.
Yeah.